Welcome to episode 65 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother, how you doing? Hey, brother. I am doing great. I feel good. It's the weekend. How are you doing? I'm also doing great. Um, yeah, can't complain. I'm ready for some wonderful theological conversation with you. Yeah, I'm stoked. This is, <laughs> I feel like we're, we're building each other up to each other. We are. I'm overjoyed for our conversation today. <laughs> so good. So <laughs> before we get into the meaty middle, so to speak, of our conversation, Let's hear some affirmations and denials. You got anything this week? I do. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I've got two affirmations. Oh, man. So These better be good. I don't think that this person listens to the podcast, but if they do, I don't have Michael permission Horton. to share their name. It's not Michael Horton, although it'd be <sighs> awesome if you listen to our podcast. I don't have permission to share their name. But if you remember a while back, I had like two or three episodes in a row where I was denying people uh, misrepresenting Mark Jones. I remember this. And I had mentioned that there was a person that I was actually directly talking to who was refusing to listen, even though I had spoken with Mark Jones. Yes. That person recently contacted me and said something along the lines of, wow, I started to read the other side with a little bit more charitability and I'm starting to think you were right. So they actually reached out to me unprompted wow. to acknowledge that they had make, made a mistake. Um, so I'm affirming theological humility because everybody makes mistakes and it takes a lot of um, takes a lot of humility to be able to eat crow and come forward and say, I made a mistake, um, especially when you don't have to, when there's nobody kind of like pressing you to. So I was very impressed with that. The other affirmation I have is the, the synod or canons of Dort. So okay. <laughs> I'm a Westminster guy. I, I reference the Westminster standards a lot, the catechisms. So you don't hear me referencing the three forms of unity, which is the canons of Dort the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. But I've been reading the Belgic Confession and also the Synod, uh, Canon of Dort. And it's just so good, crisp, precise theology. And they really like approach everything. And all of the same kinds of like points that I thought I came up with on my own that was like, oh man, this is the perfect response to Arminianism. They had in place like, you Imagine know, four, that 400 years ago. So, <laughs> um, so read the canons of Dort, Belgic confession and the Heidelberg catechism in addition to your regular diet of the Bible and whatever other confession you may be kind of reading through. Those are both pretty heavy affirmations this week. Yeah. What about you? That's good stuff. Two words for you. Christmas jazz. Christmas so, jazz. Yeah. So hear me out. I'm not really a big fan of a lot of Christmas music just okay. because it tends to sound kind of pedestrian or juvenile to me, but love the hymns, love a lot of the traditional stuff. And I also like jazz. So okay. to me, jazz is to music what cheese is to food. Like if you put cheese on most anything, it makes it better. So I discovered that I've really grown to appreciate a lot of contemporary um, Christmas music if it's done in a jazz style. So this week, I'm affirming that you should go out to Pandora and create a little Christmas jazz station for your enjoyment. And to start you off, I'm recommending that you go out to Pandora, put in the name Butch Thompson. Butch Thompson. <laughs> yeah. Butch Thompson. He'll come right up with like a holiday blend and you'll get some yourself some sweet uh, Christmas jazz, which you will really enjoy. Even if you're not into jazz music, it adds like a, a new level of artistry to it. So go listen to some Christmas jazz. I hundred percent affirm okay. that. Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> so, so denials. Denials. So I'm denying the movie Murder on the Orient Express. Isn't that like a classic movie? It's a classic novel by Agatha Christie. Oh, and that's right. Before I uh, talk about how much I hated it, I want to say it's a beautiful movie. It was just the most boring two hours of my life. And at one point, <laughs> I actually, I didn't because I wasn't sure if I was right or not. And I didn't want to spoil the movie for my wife, who was very excited about the movie. I almost leaned over and said what the big spoiler was. 
not knowing it, but just because it was that predictable, which was really strange from like a classic mystery novel. I, I, I just had this thought come to him. I was like, I wonder if this is what's going on. And then that was exactly what's going on. So unless you're like a huge murder mystery, Agatha Christie fan, just don't, just don't, don't, just don't do it. So you're saying this movie is both beautiful and dull. Yeah, the cinematography, although it wasn't really cinematography because it was mostly computer generated, but the the visual uh, um, presence of like the inside of the train and the landscape as they're going through, like the movie starts out in Istanbul in like the 1920s. And so like the the cityscape and all of all the stuff going on, all of that was really well done. And it's got some really big name actors. Um, Judy Dench was in it. Um Johnny Depp was in it, Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, big actors. Um, but it was just so boring. It was like take Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> take Sherlock Holmes and make You're him really adamant about this. Make him French and then take everything that's engaging about Sherlock Holmes and just make it an internal process that you don't have visibility to. That and that's the movie. Was this a British movie? No, it was it was an American movie. I feel like that's every British movie. Like the high drama in a British movie is somebody coming into a room and somebody else already being in there and the person walking in being like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I'm, and that's like the drama. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. But it was like this guy puts together like there's all these people on the train and he starts to uncover all these things in their past. But there's no explanation as to how he uncovers the things in their past, like hidden secret identities and things that there's just no explanation for. And I feel like if this was a Sherlock Holmes movie, he would explain like, well, this is how I came to this conclusion about you being in this war with this person next to this guy. Yeah, that is his thing. But they just never do that. So instead, you just have this guy who like knows all this stuff, but there's no accounting for why. So I've just got this really weird vision in my head of this movie taking place on the Hogwarts Express in France. There was kind of a feel to that actually. And I'm not sure why I felt like there was a part of me that wanted to like merge the world of Harry Potter with this movie. And I'm not sure exactly. Like the murderer was Dumbledore or something. Yeah. Maybe something like that. I think it was cause Johnny Depp was Depp was in the movie and he was in the last Harry Potter, the fantastic beast movie. So like in my mind, they became the same, the same movie. Wow. Well, that is a glowing review for that yeah, movie. It's terrible. Don't waste your money. Yeah. I'm so glad we talked about that for so long. Unless your wife is really excited and you want to serve her, then go and enjoy the company of your wife, but don't expect to enjoy the movie. That's always a pretty good reason yeah. to do something. In fact, you know what your wife would really enjoy or maybe somebody that you're trying to woo? Christmas jazz. That's true. Put a little, put a little of that on. Yeah. Some good conversation, some hot chocolate. Yeah, this movie would have been improved with a little bit of Christmas jazz, like if there was a little <laughs> bit of jazz in the background. But there was like the the main character had a th- like a theme song kind of, and every time he seemed to be coming through like a breakthrough, it would like zoom in on his face and like the theme song would play. But it, that happened so many times, it was like stop with the music. <laughs> this has just turned into the reformed movie review. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. But this is not the kind of movie that like. Keith and Jeremy would go over on Nerd Gospel Podcasts. It's just... Uh, I would like to see them do that. We got to get me off of this train before I murder their movie again. So what are you denying oh, this week? Oh, so many good puns tonight. Yes. So right now, what I want to deny against is having to pay to receive Christmas cards in the mail. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about. <laughs> So my sister, your lovely wife, is really good. One of her ministries, at least to me, is is sending cards. Mm -hmm. She must have sent a Christmas card to us. And we just got one of those like enigmatic and cryptic little (laughs) like like, post-it cards on our door from the post office that said, sorry, we missed you, which can never be true because they don't seem all that sorry. But it says, sorry, we missed you. (laughs) We tried to bring this to your door or we tried to deliver this to you. And it's now at the post office. And it says below, like, you've got to pay. And I was like, and it says, like, who it's from. It's like, you received something from the Arsenals. And I was like, what could this possibly? I honestly thought it was a scam at first. I was like, somebody's trying to take I know, that's right pretty funny. So I, here's what I can't believe is I thought if it turns out there wasn't enough postage on it, which yeah. is crazy because it wasn't that big. No, it wasn't. 
It was a beautiful I mean, car. We, she handed me the car and was like, do you think this needs another stamp? I was like, usually my response is probably just put another stamp on it just to be sure. <laughs> this time I was like, no, it's, pre- I mean, it's thick, but it's pretty light. Just make them pay. So yeah. what's weird is the post office like stole it and they held it ransom and we had to go and redeem it personally. Yeah. I feel like we should be leading into like a atonement episode with that kind of, with that kind of phrase. But had to do that. And then when we went to get it back, what was strange is the post office person was pretty snooty about it. They were like, well, really the other post office shouldn't have accepted this. And I was like, I'm sorry. I, can I just get the card? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I just want the Christmas card. So yeah, people put more stamps on your Christmas cards. If it seems big, when in doubt, pull another one out. Exactly. Put a stamp, put on, a there. stamp on it. Yeah. Have you yeah. have you guys opened the card? Yeah, it's awesome. It's an awesome card. I mean, hands down, my wife is the best card maker that I've ever seen. And like it's it's a whole production. So she'll she'll tell me she's going to get materials for cards and I have to like take out a second like mortgage on the house cuz she goes, I don't own the house. I don't have a mortgage on it, whatever. But I have to like <laughs> like put it into our budget cuz she's going to go to Michaels and spend like $50. But it really is like a ministry that she has. It so is, she'll she'll like sure. get everything out on the table and she'll put together a 100 cards and she'll have sent out cards to I mean, we have a church of like 15 people, but she'll go through those cards in a couple months because every time someone's gone from church or shares a prayer request that they're not feeling well, she sends a card and then follows up with a phone call or asks them how they're doing next week. It really is like a ministry of like caring and hospitality. So I am happy to spend the money on this cards and she loves to make cards. That's another thing that makes her happy. Those cards are good enough that I would pay for them. And in fact, I have. (laughs) So they're fantastic. I, I appreciate them very much. It's true. And that kind of leads me into what I wanted to talk to you about tonight. And that is, this is, can we just admit this is a weird time on the calendar? It is. Because, it's a very strange time. Yeah. It's like this time of year, the older I get, the more confusing I find it. Because I find because of where we are in the cycle of seasons and in the holiday schedule, people feel compelled to change their behavior. And sometimes I don't understand why, even though it's well-intentioned. Yeah. And this is specifically the time of year where if I divide people into just two broad groups, Christians and everybody else, this is that strange season where the words we use start to overlap, but we're speaking a totally different language. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And and one of those words that I find so confusing is joy. Just joy writ large. Like this is the season of joy, joy to the world, joy plastered on billboards and coffee cups, like by itself. So besides the definitional stuff, I kind of want to talk about joy and yeah. joy in the Christian and joy in the season. So I guess I want to start with kind of get an idea when, when you, this time of year, otherwise, when you see joy, what is it that kind of comes leaps to your mind? Yeah. Well, I think, um, maybe it's easiest to start with what I think the non-Christian thinks when they hear that. All right, we can start there. Go ahead. Is I think that they think joy is really kind of like an intensive kind of happiness. And maybe they might even say it's like an abiding or like a a deeper form of happiness. But at the end of the day, it still ends up being kind of just like this sort of feeling that is present. And it's, it's a reaction to something. Usually this thing gives me joy or this person brings me joy or this season gives me joy. Um, but it's it's kind of ethereal. Zap. So you have probably like a better memory than me of like a time in your life when you were not a Christian. So I'm curious, do you remember like in that time how you thought about that word or this season and how it pertains to that word? Yeah, I mean, I came to curious. faith. I came to faith when I was pretty young. I mean, I was like 15. So I, I was not someone who had thought deeply about anything. I mean, 15 year olds are not known for thinking deeply about things. So I, I don't know that I had reflected much on the difference, but I do remember um, just sort of it was a synonym for happiness. Maybe it was like, you know, there's like glad and then there's happy and then there's joyful. Like there's a scale of happiness and joy right. is like the highest form of happiness, but it's ultimately still just a form of happiness. 
I mean, I think that's fair. I can't say for sure, but that's what I would guess a lot of people that I interact with that aren't right. Christians understand it, that it's, especially this time of the year, it's rude in sentimentality right. and emotionalism. So if, if it's high energy, if it makes you happy, it's kind of like the JV of happiness. Yeah. And it's still like really hard to nail down, but I think that's fair. So then what do you, how do you think of it outside of that realm? Yeah. I mean, I think as a Christian, the joy is almost, this is going to sound sort of weird, but joy is an obligation for the Christian. Okay. Right. It's, it's something that we are commanded to do and have. So it's not as though, you know, there's a, there's a command to be happy. I don't see that necessarily in scripture, although you can make a linguistic argument, but there's repeated commands all over the place in different contexts to rejoice or to count something as joy or to be joyful. So I think for the Christian joy is actually, um, it's actually a result of our sanctification. It's a deep abiding, um, enjoyment. I mean, the word joy is in the middle of that word, but it's a deep abiding enjoyment of Christ and all his benefits. So some of those benefits are the temporal blessings that he brings us and recognizing that those come from the Lord, that all good things come down from the father of lights, but it's, it's a contentment and enjoyment of all of God's gifts, whether that's salvation or whether it's a good beer or whether it's time with family, whatever it is, anything that's good comes from God. And it's an enjoyment of that, that good gift. Right on. Yeah, when I think of joy, I usually think of, in like a reform sense, I think of Philippians, which for as much as I can tell, that's basically what Philippians is all about, that letter that Paul's writing. Because, I mean, if he's writing from a prison cell from which he probably had no certain knowledge of escaping other than to his own execution, it's crazy that joy is a thing that comes to his mind. And that would not come to my mind in that situation at all. And to your point, it seems like a lot of how we define joy, especially in the Christmas season, is circumstantial. Like all these elements kind of coming together to coerce or to kind of raise some emotional response that makes us feel really fulfilled or really satisfied. And I don't know, that's just a tough thing for me to, to understand. And I think it has all kinds of expectations that are horrible. But two quotes come to my mind when I think about joy. One is one I've always liked from George Duncan, who called joy the life of continual rejoicing, which is kind of like self-referent. But I like this idea of life of continual rejoicing. And then because we're reformed and we haven't yet mentioned Calvin, Calvin has this great little, almost like side comment on Psalm 4712, where he writes, the Holy Spirit has exhorted the faithful to continue clapping their hands for joy until the advent of the promised Redeemer. I just love that. Associating this, like so joyful that there's a clapping, there's some kind of manifestation of our response of joy but it's continuing. It's coming to the, to the promised redeemer. So uh, here, here's where I think like the reform tradition has a lot to offer. And you kind of touched on that already is that the reformers really caught the centrality of joy in the affections of the Christians yeah. when they insisted that our chief goal in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah, exactly. So there's this weird, like kind of discontinuity between me processing, like coming into this place in the calendar and thinking about joy and just wondering like, my gosh, it's like adventures in missing the point for most people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of paradoxically, you know, I had a conversation with um, the nurse that I share an office with the other day about Christmas. And I, I was kind of trying to lead the conversation into inviting her to come to our church's Christmas Eve service. But I started off the question with basically something like, are you, are you excited for Christmas to be coming because she's not a Christian, but she still, you know, she still kind of culturally celebrates Christmas. She doesn't call it winter holiday or anything. She calls it Christmas. And what she basically said, and I won't go into details, but she basically said, like, I don't really like Christmas because of all the extra stress and frustration that it causes. Right. But at the same time, I think that's probably a pretty universal experience for non-Christians is that this time of year the weather gets more difficult. The days get shorter from a, from a physical, less light perspective. So there's things that happen there. And this part of the year is difficult and it's frustrating and it's stressful. And then you add on top of that, 
getting together with family that you don't usually see. You add on top of that, um, having to spend money that you most people don't actually budget for, even though they know it's coming. And it just becomes a difficult time of year. But then the paradox is that you have to put on the happy face because this is a season of right. joy. Right, and exactly. So I think what, what the what the Christian faith and the reformed tradition specifically has to offer is that we can be content in God's sovereignty, that even in this difficult, stressful time of year, there's still blessings that come from God in terms of fellowship with family, fellowship with our church, a special focus on um, celebrating the beginning of the um, redemptive work of Christ in the world, not the beginning of, like simpliciter, but the beginning of the incarnate ministry of Christ in the world, that's something that we can really celebrate and enjoy. Right. You know what I mean? So when the secular world wants to talk about joy, there's nothing joyful. Like there's nothing to be joyful over in the winter apart from, well, maybe I get some cool toys, you know, I get get Christmas, I get presents, but there's nothing to be joyful over but they still have this like impulse to want to be joyful. And then that adds its own kind of stress. That's where I'm coming to this in this weird circle and where I've kind of settled. And this might be a really bold statement. I don't know. You let me know if I'm way off course here is I've settled basically that, of course, the opposite of joy is misery. That seems plain. Okay. And miserable is something we as Christians are just not meant to be. And, and that's not to say that Christians aren't tempted to be discouraged and depressed by some kind of overwhelming circumstance in their life. But in those circumstances, like you said, basically the command given to us is that we tell ourselves that we have no right to feel that way. And that joy is this posture that we embrace yeah. and with which we engage all of reality. So here's the real big paradox for me is most non-Christians want joy. We put joy up on this pedestal, especially this time of year. And yet we are there are exactly the type of people who cannot get it by definition yeah. because it doesn't exist. Like joy is uniquely Christian, I guess is the point I'm coming to. Yeah, I think that's right on. And I think what's really um, what's really interesting about the use of the word misery and the fact that I was talking about the Heidelberg Catechism earlier is that in the continental tradition, misery is a state that the Christian is saved from. And so, you know, I think misery is, like you're saying, is kind of the converse word of joy in that the, the non-Christian world just kind of uses that like an almost like an intensity or an intense version of the word like sadness or something like that. Right. Just like they use joy as an intense version of happiness. And so for them, like misery is just this passing thing that hopefully you get through. But for the Christian vocabulary, misery is a, is an ongoing state of separation from God. It's not just, um, it's not just, I'm a little bit sad about this, or even I'm really, really sad about this. It's that I am suffering apart from the grace of God and joy is the exact opposite of that. So you're right. But I think we have to be careful because joy and sadness or joy and discouragement, joy and grief are not opposites. Exactly. The, the call of the Christian is in the midst of grief or in the midst of sadness or in the midst of discouragement to find joy and to take joy in the benefits and blessings that Christ has given us, which ultimately, you know, kind of consummates in our, our heavenly joy as we're seated with him in Christ, seated with Christ in heaven, all the heavenly blessings, that Ephesians two stuff. (laughs) That was some, that was a really slick correction on the fly. Yeah. That that's what happens on like every Sunday morning, someone prays like that, but they don't stop to correct themselves. So you just saw me <laughs> reasoning in my head, the that was well Trinitarian done. error that I was making and trying to somehow pull up. And it, and, I don't know. And how for well some reason, when you just said before at the beginning of that statement and speaking of misery, I really thought you were going to make a reference to the movie again. Oh, that's but I'm a glad that I didn't jump movie. in on that. That is a freaky movie, <laughs> man. I saw that well, when I was like nine years old and that messed me up for a while. Yeah. I saw a part of that on TV once, you know, when they're, they play it occasionally and it yeah. does kind of mess with you. So we'll just leave that there. Yeah, we'll leave it there. So back to what you were saying, that's where I go back to Paul because I find it so interesting that Paul never, he never asked others to do what he did not do himself. Right. So when you look at like the, re- the record of his life, you can see 
his joy, even in the midst of all those difficult circumstances. So here's a dude that's incarcerated for obedience to the gospel, which you know means his freedom is totally denied. His dignity is totally denied. When he's writing to the Philippians, it's clear, at least the way I read it, that the Philippians were at pains to understand the wisdom of all of this craziness, it, like that the most useful servant God had was cooped up in prison. Yeah. I mean, that sounds crazy. And then you have Paul's enemies preaching so as to aggregate Paul's sufferings. And that's why he says like, he supposed that they would afflict me in my imprisonment, which is crazy. And so despite all of this, like you said, here is Paul was able to rejoice because he perceived there was some other agenda, one which was like took into consideration greater motives than his own immediate comfort. So I guess my question is, well, what do you think, or how do you think, now that's a very serious circumstance, what Paul was in. Um, I don't want to say like we need to bifurcate levels of joy in terms of trying to understand the situation. It's all one and the same, but to a lesser extent, how do you think we do that in like this crazy little patch of life between November and January? Yeah, I think, um, it, it would be really interesting to trace out the use of the theme of joy and contentment in Philippians, because for Paul, it's not just a matter of finding a like finding the silver lining in his dark right. days. That's that has nothing to do with joy in the way that Paul is using it. Instead, what Paul is saying is that because he's able to be content in all things, because he's learned to be content in all circumstances, that the circumstances cannot rob him of his joy. And so I think for for us as Christians, the first step has to be learning to be content in all circumstances. And, you know, I think that is so much easier to say than it is to do because it's so easy um, to be discontent all the time. Um, And especially in, you know, as we are in this shopping season between Thanksgiving and Christmas, which is a longer shopping season this year, um, basically every external stimulus that we have is trying to convince us that we we need more we want more we've got to have more and so there's that added element of of this sort of the culture is fostering discontent in order to sell stuff so we have to strive even harder to grab a hold of contentment to say my contentment is found in christ so yeah it might be nice to have this other book or it might be nice to drive a nicer car and it's okay to want nice things that's that's fine but to learn to say, I'd like that, but even if I don't have it, that's just fine too. Um, that's a hard, it's a hard thing to learn. And I struggle with it all the time. Um, I And it's not always material. It's not just things. It's, I wish I had a better grasp of this theology, or I wish that I had studied Greek better because then I don't have to work so hard when I'm trying to read the Greek New Testament or something like that. That's a form of discontentment too, to look at the past and say, I wish that I had done this differently because then my life would be better. So I think contentment has to be the first step. And then once contentment is in place, then we can start to turn to the source of our joy, which is Christ. And and really get joy from being in union with him. Yeah. I think that discontentedness, at least in my own life is the default position. Yeah. That's where it's just going to go without any kind of transformation of the mind. But at the same time, you're right in that there's an important distinction, I think, between trying to find a silver lining, because that strikes me as a distinctly human endeavor. Like if I can just try hard enough, I have enough biblical knowledge. If I can just pair that with my own focus and try to find what the good that's happening here, then all will be well. And somehow I'll have a sense of joy. I think that's backwards because there are times when we're not going to be able to understand the secret will of God. And so therefore trying even well-intentioned to say things like, well, God is sovereign. He's in control. Those things are all true. Right. But what Paul is talking about here seems to be a deeper rootedness an abiding. And I think that goes back to what you said about the benefits of Christ, not just knowing Christ, in the kind of intellectual scent or like you went through his trash and stalked him, but having a relationship in which you are deeply and intimately abiding in him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to just read, um, I'm going to read chapter four of Philippians. Uh, do it. I'm going to go through 
verse 13, we'll say, and maybe I'll keep going. Um, but it says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for, for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the the reason that I wanted to read that is because this section, um, it has all of those components that we just talked about, right? But if you look at it, it's not... It's not even sort of setting aside the general context of the letter. It's not the case that Paul is like, you know, whistling Dixie and, and he's got right. flowers and sunshine all over the place. The whole thing starts off with him talking about these two women that he really seems to care for who have worked beside him, who he believes are Christians who are saved and they're fighting with each other. And so it starts off in this frustrating, difficult situation but instead of saying, knock it off and stop fighting, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, I have learned to be content in all things. So if you have the opportunity to buy a Bible that gets rid of the editor's um, like headings and things like that and minimizes the way that that chapter divisions um, split up the text, do it. Absolutely do it. Because there, this is broken into three different sections that appear to be disjointed and, and unrelated to each other, but it's clearly a single line of thinking in Paul's writing. Um, so just, I mean, I think that really is the key for the Christian, right? We have to be content in what God has given us. We have to trust in God's sovereignty. And then out of that contentment can grow a true, genuine joy. And there's a really deep honesty in what Paul's saying, of course, because I appreciate right. these. He says, not I am content, but I have learned to right. be content, which certainly intimates that that's a process and we shouldn't expect to be there right away. But it, it also struck me as you read that, that being content is not the removal of discontentedness, but the replacement of that with joy. It's right. not just trying to remove it and get it out of your life, but it's something better. It's a new focus on Christ himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... Joy is one of those things that as a Christian is not optional. And yeah, it, I think some people bristle when you say that, though. right? It's, it's not optional for the same reason that good works are not optional is that God has not, um, he's not left us as orphans, right? He is right. faithful to finish the work that he started and he is, um, he's going to do that. And so if, if as a Christian, I lack joy in my life, um, and obviously like nobody's perfect, nobody can have perfect joy all the time. But if, if I don't on some level have a deep sense of abiding contentment and joy in Christ, then that is, is, or it may be evidence that the Holy Spirit is not working in you. And I mean, joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So right. it's it's not too far of a stretch for me to say that if if joy is not present, if the fruit of the Spirit is not being harvested in your life, then is the Spirit really in your life? Um, that's, uh, you know, that can be a scary thought for people. Um, and that's why it's important, you know, look to Christ for your assurance. But we also have to 
be diligent to make our calling and election sure. And part of the way that we do that is by seeking the fruit of the spirit, including joy. Maybe above all joy. I mean, maybe joy is, maybe joy is the, I don't want to say it's like the chief fruit, but maybe it's, maybe that's kind of like the end state of the fruit of the spirit. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that makes perfect sense actually, because joy is the thing in Paul's life throughout the course of his ministry, which demonstrates their transcendent influence of the Holy Spirit. Right. Because it's possible, like you said, to be unhappy and be joyful, to be grieving and to be joyful. It is that posture, like I said. So I think some of the proof of the work of the Holy Spirit is that that's kind of like the super Jason umbrella. In other words, joy from the Holy Spirit demonstrates and manifests its sincerity and its fullness in that it's not tied to feeling. It's not tied to circumstance. Right. And I can't think of anything in my life that isn't influenced by feeling. And so if it's up to me, if in my self-contained little Jesse bubble, everything I do is going to be reactive according to feeling and something from the outside must come in and bring that joy. And it can only come from the outside. So I think like, I'm totally with you with what you're saying. There's something about joy in particular that should shape us. Yeah. And I think there's some real proof there that God is shaping us when we are joyful. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's right on is that we, you know, there are certain things that Christians ought to be known for, right? We should be the most charitable. And I don't mean like charitable in terms of charitable giving, although we probably should be that too, but we should be the most charitable people on the planet. We should always be seeking to understand people we disagree with in the most favorable light that we can. Right. I think that, that that's a good Sure. Um, a good open thing for Christians to seek after. We should be the most forgiving people on the planet, right? We should be the ones that, that people are almost disgusted with us, with how forgiving we are, that no matter what you do to us, that if you are genuinely sorry that you, you know, we will never hold it against you, that we will forgive readily and happily. And I think joy is another one of those markers is that people should be able to look at us. And, and you know what? Um, I think that when I, when I look at the Christians in my, in my life and in my past that have really marked, been marked with joy, that it absolutely is something people notice. So I remember I had a a friend in college who, um, after college, um, she was killed in a car accident and, um, it came out just before the funeral that she was coming back from her first ultrasound when she was killed in the car accident. And then it came out that they didn't think they could get pregnant and they had just discovered that they were pregnant. So all of these things, which should be absolutely joyful things are suddenly turned into the darkest, deepest, terrible things that a husband could imagine. His young wife who is pregnant was killed suddenly and tragically. And I remember him standing up at the funeral and reading this passage out of Philippians and saying, I have learned to be content in all things. Wow. And he read it and he, he had memorized that at some point in college, that whole, that whole sequence there, he had memorized it in college and he got up there and it was, it was interesting to watch because as he, he got into the podium and, you know, he's, he's trying to make remarks about her life and he's struggling as anyone would. And then all of a sudden there was a strength that came into his voice And he started to read that passage from memory and he finalized it and said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then he just sat down and it was this moment that there was such gravity, but there was such stability in the one person in the room that you would expect to be totally unstable. His stability was found in the contentment and joy that he had in Christ, even in the darkest imaginable circumstances. I can't imagine something worse than that. Right. He was able to be content and to take joy in the fact that he would see his bride again and he believed he would see his baby and someday he could take joy. But deeper than that, he could take joy in that he would be with Christ. And that's right. I mean, I there's no words to describe that. Man, that preaches. Right. Because people should look on Christians like this guy and say there is no human way possible that they can be this forgiving this gracious, this loving, this joyful. And we would say, you're right. It's from outside ourselves. And there's great proof in that. 
And that's like a very powerful example. So when I think about this concept of joy, there's two theological truths that bring the source of joy into focus for me. And the first is something that you already said, and I want to kind of circle back to that for a second. And that was that I would define joy as the, or at least one of the definitions, as the outworking of our union with Christ. So we've got God who created us, and then he recreated us in Christ so as to form deep and lasting relationships. And they're our source of greatest joy, but there's no relationship that surpasses our fellowship with Jesus Christ in the gospel. And I love that in John, faith, as Jesus reminded his disciples, is believing into Christ. Right. So not just believing in Christ, but into Christ. There's something special about that. I I just think I often forget that, and especially this time of year, forget that joy is the outworking, which should be all year round, of course, but it's it's a process and it's demonstrative and it should show my union with Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and that believing into Christ is so key. Is that we I think when sometimes we lose sight of union with Christ as as the source of all of the benefits of salvation. Um you know, there's this debate about which is which is a more primary aspect of our salvation is it imputation or is it union. And the fact is that imputation can only happen because Christ is united to us, right? He can't give us his righteousness and he can't take away our sin unless we are really concretely metaphysically united to him. Right. And that happens through faith, but um, that's so vital, so important. And then how can you not be joyful? Right. I mean, that's what I get nervous about is, is maybe I, this is maybe this is learning the process of learning to be content and also growing in joyfulness is meditating on that truth hardcore until yeah. yeah, it actually becomes something that's uh, firmer than faith in the sense that it is by faith, but it's no less a very real thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, faith is not, faith is not believing in something despite the evidence, right? right. It's not, it's not looking at a situation and saying, I don't think that this is the case, but I'm going to believe it anyways. It's, understanding and affirming the reality of something and then trusting that trusting into that, as you say, it's, it's affirming the facts of salvation and that the facts of salvation are for me. And then trusting that Christ is who he said he was, who he says he is, and is going to do what he says he is going to do. That's faith. Um, I think so often we, we minimize faith to either some sort of blind, grasping, right? I'm going to reach out in the dark and I'm going to grasp and hopefully I grab onto something, but it's not that it's so much more concrete than that. Right. And I, I think that we need to continue to, to push ourselves to continue to take those truths and incorporate them into the essence of who we are, by the power of the Holy spirit, yeah. such that they do transform the way that we think, the way that we believe and the way that we feel. Yeah. Because it's the hardest thing for me in the Christian walk, bar none, is making sure that God's word, as manifested in the scriptures, influences my feelings and not the other way around. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's like a really bad circle of trying to create joy. So, you know, Jesus assures his disciples, this is John 14, 11. I just want to read this verse. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, which yeah. is awesome. I mean, that's yeah. just an awesome promise. Put that on your greeting cards for this year. So, I mean, I, I know there's there's some distinction as to whether or not Jesus is meaning to say that the believers were the recipients of joy or the objects of joy. I think that both are probably intended there. Yeah. But the bottom line is that Christ restores to us who have lost all joy. So we're people. We've, we have no sense of joy. We can't perceive it. It's totally gone from us. It's a, it's a stopgap that we cannot fill. Christ restores that to us with the joy he finds in us through the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Father. So this is why, in a strange, really roundabout way, if you're still following me, this is why I feel very strongly about being able to celebrate the incarnation. Because every time I see joy, I think I'm the person, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who can bring that joy into this situation. I'm the one who can, can try to redeem that in the conversations I have with people. There's no other force. Right. which can bring joy into this season. It does not exist. So it's almost like, like you said, people are advertising, looking for it and we have it. So we shouldn't be ashamed or feel guilty to want to celebrate yeah. some aspects of Christmas because this is the actual joy. The beginning of the incarnation 
is the start of this process of believing into Christ. And so I say, I'm going to raise the joy flag and march out there and say, like, this sounds like little, little drummer boy, boy style, but not like that. But <laughs> but say, like, here we go. Like, get, get on the Christmas train for celebrating the incarnation uh, with the sense of belonging into Christ. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, you said the most reformed thing ever about Christmas last week and all of the people who were like, yeah, are like, oh, because you just said we should celebrate Christmas. I agree we should celebrate Christmas, but not as a holy day, but I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think we have what people are looking for, right? We have it. We are it. I mean, the church is what right. people are looking for, not because of some sort of ethereal, it's great to be part of a group or anything like that, but because the church is Christ's body. We are the ongoing presence in a, an abstract way of Christ's ministry on earth, right? So Christ comes into the world and he has his ministry on earth for 33-ish years, and then he promises to be with the disciples as they continue his mission. I mean, that's something that they, I think that's something that we miss about what happens in the great commission is Christ issues the great commission rooted in his authority because all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto him. And so then right. he delegates that authority to the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And, and, we have what the world is looking for. Now, you know, we can get into discussions about, you know, seeker sensitive churches and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the elect are out there. They're out right. there. And if we don't go to preach, who will? Right? Exactly. God that's is sovereign, but he's chosen to use people to spread his word. And so there, there are people out there that, the spirit will turn to faith if you are faithful to share the gospel with them. And Christmas is like the one time a year. I, I was laughing the other day because, you know, the hospital that I work at, New Hampshire is extremely, extremely secular and liberal. And the hospital that I work at is no exception. But at Christmas time, there are Christmas trees everywhere with angels. There's manger scenes. There's there's all sorts of religious Christian symbolism everywhere, everywhere. I mean, almost to the point where I actually walked, walked past a manger scene yesterday and thought, you know, there are Presbyterians in this area that might be offended by this. I wonder <laughs> if I should tell them because it's so pervasive, right? Exactly. That, that I, I couldn't imagine someone from an OPC church who felt strongly about the second commandment coming in here and not being a little bit offended by it. But it's just so pervasive. You know, why would we not share that with people? Right. Why would we keep that to ourselves? I just, I just can't imagine why anyone would do that. And that's why I'm saying that I'm trusting in the sovereignty of God to such an extent that as he's put together the calendar in these times and seasons, especially this one every year, that whether you believe we should take Christ out of Christmas or we should put him in, the <laughs> bottom line is, this is a special point of this is a special time of year where there's a point of entry for us yeah. to speak about these things. And I do feel like I abdicate that responsibility that you're talking about to preach the gospel, especially when it is so easy to touch on these points because yeah. they're being advertised like this is the time of joy. For some reason, for this month, we're gonna give more than we would at any other time of the year. And we're going to be considerate of our fellow man. And right. we're going to try to understand what it means to live at peace with one another. And this is what's crazy. It's like, this knows no bounds in our society. So whether it's at the level of the president or financial markets, yeah. everybody gets cheery. Everybody gets happy as if that's joy. And then everybody I think gets depressed when it's all mm -hmm. over in some respect. Yeah. Because it's so, so fleeting. Right. It, it, we're, we're trying to fill this idea of joy with sentimentality and happiness and good gifts and the right sense of satisfaction and the right time with family and meeting all these expectations. And it, it's almost like somebody just needs to say, you're headed in the right direction in terms of you want to focus on joy. It's just that you're doing it and going about it all the wrong way. So that's why I'm saying, I think there's something redeeming about celebrating Christmas in that way. Yeah. Like we should just take it back. Like, why can't yeah. we do that? Absolutely. Just, just take it back. It's uh, funny. 
you know, we did that episode on the gospel and how you have to use words. And our kind of our tagline for it was preach the gospel, use words, they're necessary. And <laughs> what's interesting about this time of year is that the world is already using the words that we need exactly. to use to preach the gospel. Right. So all we need to do is redirect their attention away right. from the joy, the sort of self-generated joy they're trying to produce and say, I've got the actual source of joy and it's, it's Jesus. And you know what? This time of year, people aren't even going to be upset with you for saying that. Right. The, the most hardened atheists that other times a year would just be angry at you if you even hinted at that are going to go, yeah, tis the season. <laughs> I mean, it's right. it's like it, an it, unprecedented opportunity. <laughs> Trump card. I right. know. Not President Trump card. Just Trump card, like generally speaking. Yeah. I would like to get a President Trump card. Really? It's the best card. I mean, oh. I, I I know all about cards and President Trump cards. They're like the best cards. It's the Trump of the Trump cards. It's the Trump of the Trump cards. I mean, maybe there's a part of me that feels like we should be ashamed if like the Christmas peanut special does a better job at evangelizing this time of year than you do. Then you, we got to take a step back and yeah. say, are we being as forthright as we should be about this stuff? So that's kind of where I, I was coming from with this, because again, based on what you were saying, I don't understand to like an atheistic or even kind of a, a nominally humanistic worldview even has space for joy. What yeah. is like the precedent for that? There is none. So you're right. It's almost like everybody is in a sense begging. I went for a walk this afternoon in the neighborhood across the street. And same thing I noticed that you just said, there's like six manger like sets and they're, they're not great. Like they're the horrible, huge, pla I'm going to yeah. offend people who have these on their lawns. Like the, the huge plastic ones with like the really colorful, very yeah. white looking um, people, Mary and Joseph. Yeah. yeah. But it's ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, silent night is on the radio. Uh, I mean, even some of the traditional hymns that are going to speak Jesus' name are present. Yeah. And I agree that most people, when they sing those songs, are taking the Lord's name in vain because mm -hmm. they are not approaching him properly. But then that kind of means maybe there should be more, a little bit more onus on us to express when we're able to, in our spheres of influence that God gives us, yeah. what these things are really talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the Peanuts Christmas special and being bold to share the gospel story. Uh, do you know the story behind the gospel's Peanuts special? Uh, I feel Peanuts like I've heard it before. Christmas I just special? know that Linus is the man. We got to get our Linus on. Yeah. So, so Charles Schultz, who wrote the Peanuts, I don't know about his religious persuasion. So I don't want to paint this as though this was some sort of like great Christian act, but he was told by NBC who was running the special that it needed to be a secular Christmas special. And so there wasn't supposed to be any references to the Bible or Jesus or the nativity. It was supposed to just be all about seasons greeting and good cheer and all that stuff. And he literally just made it what it was and turned it in. And it was too late for them to do anything about it. And so they had to run the Christmas wow. special with the, the full reading out of Luke, right? Linus gets up and he basically calls, he puts everyone on blast. Yeah, he does. This is not what Christmas is about. This is what Christmas is about. So I don't know, I don't know about Charles Schultz and his religious leanings, but I think we could probably take a cue from him because I think he was saying to NBC that's not what Christmas is about. Right on. Regardless of how he felt about Christmas, he recognized that what Christmas is about is Christ. And so, I, I mean, I think it's a good time of year. It's a great opportunity. It's it's a good time to engage in some of that presuppositional apologetics we talked about. People are celebrating joy and they don't even know what that is. And they don't. Exactly. There's no naturalistic explanation for what, what this weird category of joy is. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And if, if it does, it's not distinct from happiness. So what's the difference? Why is happiness normally okay? But I mean, you could go down all sorts of trails right. with that of, of you have this deep longing for a, a stable joy, a deep abiding joy. Let me tell you why that is. Cause I know why you have that and you don't. That's a, that's may sound arrogant, but if delivered correctly, that is an appealing apologetic for sure. People, people will chomp at the bit. If, if you can really hone in on the fact that there's something that they want that they're missing and you can tell them why it is and how they get it, that, that preaches right there. 
It does, and it destroys legalism. Mm -hmm. It destroys antinomianism. It, it lays all those things flat because yeah. if joy is the outworking of our union in Christ, and if joy flows from this taste of the sweetness of grace, then all those things fall by the wayside. It's the best news ever because it, it, re it levels expectations yeah. and it brings everything under the Lordship of Christ by his glory through his love for us. So that's kind of where I'm at. And, and that's why I was like tying this together with how do we define joy? How does the world define joy? And then what does it mean in this season? Because I just feel like we as Christians sh should take some of this season back and yeah. bring it under the Lordship of Christ and not be afraid to celebrate it in a way that's appropriate. Right. Because we're fearful that the world is going to, the world is going to misunderstand what we're doing, or we're fearful of this like network effect in reformed theology or Calvinism that says, well, there are other people that have different convictions about how you celebrate it, and therefore I'm not going to wade into the waters at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some validity to that discussion and we can have, we can have more of that discussion on a different episode sometime, or you can just go back and listen to last year's. But, um, but I think you're right. I mean, we have to, we, we should celebrate the incarnation and there's no reason exactly. why that is a controversial statement. Exa right on. Now, and yet I feel like sometimes it is. Well, it, it is. I mean, this time of year, it absolutely is, which is, I love my covenanter brothers and sisters and my, um, you know, really ultra strict conservative confessional brothers and sisters who the only Christian holiday is a Lord's day. I get it. Right. I get it. But if you think it's controversial to celebrate the incarnation, just because it happens to be December, you're doing something wrong. So right. let's all celebrate the incarnation. Let's get after it. Let's really show the world what we have in terms of joy and where our source of joy is. Um, you know, tis the season, right? Wow. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> End with a little tis the season tis talk. Tis the season. Also, I'm pretty sure Linus is reformed, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. He's a, he's a big Voss guy. Um, so <laughs> if people wanted to share some joy with us or maybe share some misery because they didn't like where we went with this topic <laughs> at all. How could they get in touch with us? Uh, the best ways, there's a couple. Uh, we love getting emails. Uh, yeah, you we can do. email us at reformbrohood at gmail.com. And you can season. also leave us a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Bros. And even more right now than uh, calling or emailing us, I would love it if you could share this episode with somebody. So share it on Facebook, whatever, put it on a flash drive and give it to your grandma. However, you got to get it out to somebody. Give Take it to this, your grandma on a flash drive. <laughs> I don't know. Put, burn it on a CD. I don't know. What, what do people do with their, with their grandmas? I, I don't, that's a really good question, but sorry, oh. I just was not expecting the flash drive grandma combo. I, yeah. I don't know. And that wouldn't, I mean, anyway, find somewhere, find someone who you think would benefit from this episode and then find some way to share it with them. Right. right. That would be great because put, part of put the it on a record, tie it to it. a pigeon, send it to your grandma. <laughs> tie it to a pigeon. I definitely want to see if you tie this, if you transcribe this whole episode, wrap it around a pigeon's ankle and send that thing out. I'd really like to see a picture of that. That would be pretty awesome. But that is one of the things we're serious about is if you find any of this helpful or know somebody else that would benefit from this conversation. The reason why we talk every week is because we enjoy it but also because we're hoping that it's a blessing and a benefit and a challenge to others or that we're going to get corrected. So yeah. either way, send it out into the world. And it, this is the gift, gift that costs you nothing, right? So right. this season, give the Reformed Brotherhood. Give it to everybody. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> we, you'll, you'll feel so much joy if you give the Reformed Brotherhood. Merry Christmas. Here's a to bunch of strangers on the internet to listen to. <laughs> Uh, that is the gift that keeps on giving. So Tony, in closing out our epic conversation of the Orient Express and joy and the Trump card, is there anything you want to say kind of wraps it all together? You know, I don't know if I have anything. I mean, we've already said so much tonight and it, it's, it's been so good I, on some level. <laughs> it's so simple. I mean, I feel like we say that a lot. We're like, we, we have this, say that a lot. we have this big, long conversation. And then it's like, by the way, I could have said this in like a minute, but right. Christ is our joy. Like that's what it boils down to. Christ is our joy. That's, that's all there is to say. I mean, there's yeah. nothing more and there's nothing greater than that. You're exactly right. And that's a thing that, I mean, how many times maybe 
will our eyes see those exact words this holiday season? And yet how often, if you're like me, will you really fail to appreciate or, or kind of metabolize what that actually means? Or even worse, so, how often will you roll your eyes at it? Yeah, because it seems cliche and this gets mm -hmm. back into the like, well, I'm not going to celebrate it because it's just too ubiquitous and it's yeah. become too commonplace and too abused. That's not a good excuse, I don't think, because the exhortation is to be filled with joy. Yeah. And so this is a season where we can do that with kind of a different sense of urgency and interaction with our culture. So my challenge is this in this Christmas season, I'm trying to do a lot of this kind of exercise when I'm doing something whether it's some kind of seemingly useless holiday obligation, like attending a party that I have to, or being with people that I want to be with, I'm trying to ask myself, where's Christ in this? Where yeah. am I celebrating the joy that comes from believing into Christ? And part of that for me is there are times when the best thing that I can do is just challenge my feelings the way David did. So to close, I want to read just Psalm 42, 11. So this is where David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So I think the best thing we do in this holiday season is challenge how we feel and ask, is this really the way I should be behaving? Is there joy here? Where is the joy? And how can I find Christ in all of this? Yeah. Amen. It doesn't get any better than that. I guess not. Well, until next time. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.